Welcome, Joe Exter, assistant coach at Michigan State Spartans. Happy to have him on our podcast here today, the Neutral Zone Podcast. And we're going to start this off by talking about his career as a hockey player, some things he went through, and then uh, we're going to finish off with questions from our scouting staff in reference to NCAA hockey, goalie-specific questions for Joe, who's an expert in that field, and then just some general scouting questions. So, Joe, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been enjoying listening to it. And when you got the text that you wanted me on, I was like, all right, let's go to work. Perfect. So let's start, let's start in the early years. Were you a goalie right from the get-go or were you a player? Oh yeah, goalie from the start. Goalie okay. right from the beginning. Started skating when I was three. Goalie when I was five. And that's where I rolled into my favorite goalie number was 35. Also had a little bit to do with my favorite goalie growing up was Andy Moe. So those two things tied together. Work for a good number, but a number I was never able to have at any of the higher levels, whether it was junior or pro or college. Interesting. So you started out in, uh, you're from Cranston, Rhode Island. Then you make the move to Cushing Academy. Walk mm-hmm. us through uh, that. Did you look at a lot of schools? How did you get hooked up with Cushing? Cushing Academy did not look at a lot of schools. A guy that had a, his man that had a huge impact in my life and his family had a huge impact as well as my teammates and I'll call them brothers of hockey at Cushing, Jay Philbin, his father, Jay Sr. It was seventh or eighth grade where the hockey level, you don't know where you're going to play, especially coming from a small state like Rhode Island. I was in Massachusetts a lot. They were kind of, in his sense, building a program at Cushing and he asked me to come on board and it's the only school I looked at. It's the best four years of my life. No kidding. Okay. So you're a four-year player there. You guys had some teams at that point. Who were some of the guys you played with? Oh, we were loaded top to bottom. For a goalie, it hurt me game-wise. I wasn't getting a lot of action, but practice-wise, there's nothing better than it. Big names. Tom Pody was the most successful player. Played over close to 900 games in the National Hockey League. But there was a, a majority, a large majority of players that went on to play at College Division One and had good pro careers as well. So Pody would be a big name. Bobby Allen was a key part of the early days of Jerry York turning around Boston College. Ryan Moynihan, great career at Cornell. I mean, I could just list the whole, whole yeah, yeah. There are many, too many for me to name. Uh, so then you go from Cushing Academy to the OHL. You have kind of an interesting Ooh. trajectory over the next few years. Uh, talk to us about kind of your, you know, you signed with Erie Otters in the Ontario Hockey League, and then you ended up playing in the NCA, which that, you know, almost never happens. Well, it also Crazy. almost never happens that a kid from Rhode Island is in the OHL. So the rules of... <laughs> change nowadays you would have been in the queue nowadays but how did that all come about oh the pathway there it was different I spent four years at Cushing college options weren't great at the end of it and I was like hey if I'm going to make it in hockey let's see what I'm all about went out to Erie was in Erie I was there for four months and obviously playing wise didn't work out the way that I wanted to but learning wise for the moment in big picture it had a good impact on me and I was able to take a lot out of it and I was there for, for a little bit and I realized, hey, I want to get back to college. This is where I belong. It's kind of the natural progression of the route I was earlier on. And I have no idea how it all weaved its way through. And then after, but it worked. I went from Erie. I actually wasn't playing anywhere. I was working with Billy Berglund at my time, a great goalie coach. I left Erie and I literally just went and trained with him in Boston. Was there for three months. I drive up and down from Rhode Island to Boston, just training, training, training to say, all right, God make this work for me. And again, the crazy part about all this is the Philbin family. How did I get to Merrimack? It was when Chris Serino just got the job at Merrimack. 
he came from UNH. And Jay Philbin was at Merrimack, former Cushing teammate. I mentioned earlier how his father had such an impact on my career and life. He went into Coach Serino and said, hey, there's one person you want to get, get Joe. And this is me not even playing any games. I was sitting and just driving back and forth to Rhode Island practicing. And somehow Coach Serino trusted one of his players that he was vouching for me to be part of his team, offered me a scholarship. And how that all came back, it's funny how it all works. Serino knew who I was during the, my time at Cushing, my four years there. But at that time, the OHL teams played exhibition games against the U.S. program, and I played one of those games. So that's a little okay. bit of a playing impact that I had on him. But more importantly, I think you learn this as a coach when players are willing to stand up for a play and say, hey, this guy is good because they know better than us as scouts. This is somebody you got to get. And thankfully, Jay Kidd, the kid thought that of me, and Coach Serino followed it. And another four years that I wouldn't change for anything. Did you have to sit out, Joe, or were the rules different at that time? Or like, how did you make that transition from the OHL to the NCAA? So went OHL. Next year, I went to Waterloo in the USHL for a little bit. Finished that season in, with the Biddeford Snow Devils in the Eastern Junior League, which was Sean Tremblay, another fabulous coach I was able to play under. That team is now the Manchester Monarchs. So that was my next year after the O. And then from the O to that year, first year of college, sat out. But the best part of my that year right there had the biggest impact on me as a goaltender, how I played and how I developed Mike Donahue. Now he's had a huge role with the Chicago Blackhawks. He was the assistant coach at the time, him and I on the ice every day. And we were able to work. I had to sit out that whole year, a few games the following year. And that's what got me prepared to have the impact or a impact in college hockey. So you, you obviously, uh, after you sit out, you had a pretty storied career at Merrimack. You know, the stats indicated if anyone ever wants to look that up, but you had a big injury in 2003 where you fractured your skull in two places. And I was reading about it, you know, before the call, how you were actually in a coma for 10 days, medically induced coma, really scary injury. A lot of people kind of wrote you off at that point of not being able to play again. Could you talk to us about kind of the whole injury and everything after it, you know, in the immediate days after it? Well, the injury was in 2003, the playoff game versus Boston College. The only thing I remember of that day is dropping my car keys off. At, no, letting public safety know that my car was going to be on campus during spring break. The lady that they ran, ran into was Mike Cavanaugh's mother. At that time, he was assistant coach for Boston College. Now, obviously, he's the head coach of UConn. Last thing I remember about that day, little side note for you. Go to the game. Game's going on. Get hurt. You don't remember. I don't remember anything that happened during from there. And then the road continues and everybody can look at, well, you had trouble phrasing the question to me. It's pretty simple. A blessing happened that day for me, helping for me and helping for many, for many others. Big picture wise, we went into that season, wanted to leave a great mark my senior year. Trust and believe was a theme that we had. And I personally thought that that theme would carry us to the highest level on the ice, but at a bigger picture, more of a life lesson way, it gave us tools for us to rely on for the rest of our lives. Trust and believe. You better have some qualities in the foundation of your life, and you got to live by it because something's going to come your way. It's going to carry you where you want to go, but it's also going to take you through the tough times. And it helped Garrett carry me through. But I think for the people around me and for the Merrimack College, I think it was for the greater good and the more people, and that's what was able to get me through that time of my life that became a blessing and impacted so many others. And it's essentially, that's what we're here for. And we could peel it back many different ways, what happened to my head, the recovery afterwards, 
the process I went through from intensive care to getting downgraded surgery on my vocal cords that were paralyzed. Like we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for miraculous things that happened after multiple surgeries. So Joe, take, take me to, I mean, that's, it's, you have a pretty compelling story here where, you know, you're in the hospital, you're in a life and death situation. Obviously you came out of it. We're talking today, but you went back after that whole experience to play again. And some of the numbers I was reading in articles saying that, you know, the rehab at Spalding was supposed to be four months. It took you eight days and you were out of there. And three months later, you're on the ice. Tell me kind of after the shock of everything that happened, walking out of the hospital, how do you go from walking out of that hospital, happy to be alive, obviously, to I'm getting back on the ice, I'm going to keep playing hockey? Oh, well, the first part of it is it's not like you just, it's not like the movies. You don't wake up from something like that and like, bang, okay, I'm alive, let's go get this. Like, it's a gradual process that you have to go through. And I'm not going to speak who I want, like what my mentality is with hockey, but on their side, like I was like, all right, when am I going to play again? And they were just, all right, we got to give them a carrot to hang on to. Sure, you're going to be able to get back and play. Like, all right, good. Not knowing that like they're like, probably this probably isn't going to happen, but we'll let them hang on to that. So that was what I hung on to and gra- grabbed on to. And the time after that, the got home, slow process that goes through, felt, started feeling better, was actually back there, lost a, little, some, a lot of weight as well, so had to put some weight on. And I was like, all right, where do we go from here? And then the first thing I had to do was, get back on the ice. So I got back on the ice and then my agent and those in the hockey world, I had to find a way to get back to playing. And it was a slow process, which anything in life takes time, but it was a slow process and a journey. And I ended up in wheeling. And it was another, I went back at Christmas time. That was after, so under a year from when the injury happened, I played my first game just after Christmas. And, oh, it's hilarious. Like I had to go down there, spent the Thanksgiving with my family. My girlfriend at the time was now my wife and left right before Christmas and went down to Wheeling. That's amazing. See, that obviously ended your college career, but then you went in two years in the uh, with the Wheeling Nailers in the Coast League. How was that, Joe? Was it was there a fear there? I mean, obviously you can't play if you're scared, but is there I mean what was your mentality going into that season? Get back, play, and like every kid that's playing now, or I hope it's playing Division One college, I wanted to play in the National Hockey League. And I wanted to be able to look back saying that I gave everything I possibly had to get there. Did I get there? Definitely didn't. But did I give everything I had to get there? Absolutely. So when everybody wants to say live with no regret, I truly can look back now in my hockey career. I had no regret. Gave it everything I possibly had up until the final day. Now, my timing wheeling was great. Pat, Pat Bingham, another hockey guy, great guy to play for. Learned a lot in that area. Also spent a time in between the... My first year there and second year there, I went away to Quebec with myself, Marc-Andre Fleury, Andy Kyoto, and Jean-Sebastien Caron. So four goalies. I was the fourth and our goalie coach. And during that time, I, in that week, with the details we were going over, what we were being taught, I'd go back to my hotel room, write it all down, keep track of things, notes. Like, oh, okay, because I knew eventually I was going to get the coaching after I gave this the best push I possibly had. So I wanted to learn and make sure I just – absorbed everything I did so I absorbed it what I could make get better at as a player but looking back the details there I was able to help carry into my coaching career interesting yeah I mean I looked up your your numbers you had good numbers in the pros what what made you put in the towel say this is this is it oof I knew I was getting because I graduated when I was 24 it was 26 27 when that happened and I had I gave it all I had and if I'm not going to give something a 
million percent, not a hundred percent, a million percent would like my whole life just be absorbed with it. It's time to turn the page. And I could look back. It was cool ending too. My brother was in town. Well, I'm close with my older brother. And I knew that was going to be my last game going into it. Had a shutout. It's time to turn the page. So now I got to flip it. Let's get into coaching at a good age where I can work my way, work my way in. Let's see if I can make a career out of it. And that's when I decided to turn the page from playing, gave it everything I had, time to get in the next phase of my life. So that, that leads me to the, my next question was going to be, did you always know you wanted to coach? Sounds like, yes, you did. You started out 05, 06 with AIC. Then you take a year with the Cedar Rapids in the USHL and then spend five years with the National Development Program. Talk us through those early years of, of coaching before you got into coaching at the Big Ten level. You know, kind of what'd you learn? What would you think of those stops along the way? And well, first of all, you don't know. I, I that's hilarious. Like when coaches say, oh, I was born to do this. I was going to do this. No, like for sure. I didn't know I was always going to coach. Like my old goal early on when I was playing for my whole time was I want to, I want to make this to the highest level I possibly can. So that's where the focus is where towards the end of it, you realize what a, like obviously is going to be a, a next phase of life. And that's when I was like, all right, I'm going to start to really pay attention and take all these lessons that I've learned. After that, yeah, how did I get in? Realized I wasn't done playing and just emailed, called, and basically banged down any door I possibly could, met with coaches, et cetera. And Gary Wright, was for, I was fortunate. He gave me an opportunity at AIC. I was a grad assistant. I was the only assistant. I lived in the office, like literally lived in the office, which was, which was looking back, it was great. Like it was great timing for it all. And just the experiences that Gary allowed me to have helped me grow as a coach. Supposed to be a two-year program. I was only there for a year because during that time, you're coaching, you're training, and you're going for your master's. But then right after that year, Mark Carlson, Coach Carlson, offered me an opportunity to coach in the USHL. And again, the goal of all these jobs was to get into coaching, not necessarily to get my master's degree in any specific area. And I wanted to make sure I was continuing to climb the ladder. So I was like, okay. Do I stay at AIC or do I go to Cedar Rapids? What's better for me in my hockey career? At that moment, going to Cedar Rapids was. Go there, see how it's all going to work out. Was there for a year. Got married after that following year, and who knows what was, what was going to happen. Was supposed to go back to Cedar Rapids, but that's when the U.S. job came available. And I was there for four years. It's a pretty cool story on how it, it's funny how the hockey world works. And if all those guys out there are kids or young guys, you're having an impact on those around you, your coaches, the people around you, or the friends that you're making. I was coaching in Cedar Rapids. There was a tournament going on at the Ice Cube in Ann Arbor. So part of the job while you're coaching the USHL, like a college assistant, is to recruit and coach develop. So there was a tournament in Ann Arbor at the Cube. I drove through it from Cedar Rapids, was there for a few days. Coach Carlson wanted me back for the weekend games. Drove back to Cedar Rapids, so there's 16 hours right there. But then I went back, so we played Friday, Saturday. Drove back to Ann Arbor on this, this same five-day span here. Had to continue to recruit. I'm like, oh, at the time, like, oh, this is kind of insane. What am I doing here? While I'm leaving the building that final day, Pat Foley, who's no longer coaching, but at that time he was coaching at the U.S. program, mentioned that this goaltending position might open up with the U.S. and that I should apply for it. Like, all right. And then from there, obviously applied for it. And I was there for four years. And that, that was like, that was the grad school that I went to. I know I was at AIC to get a master's in some areas, but I was getting my master's when I was working with the national team development program, not because of the title of the program, because of the people who were at the program while I was there. And who are some of those people, Joe, that, you know, that were mentors oh, to you? 
Oh, and it, like the list can go on, but timing is everything in life. Tim Taylor, legendary coach from Yale, no longer with this. And I consider him a true friend and his, his, he was there. He was a mentor to everybody there. Fortunately for me, my schedule and his schedule overlapped a great amount. And we developed what I would call a friendship, a true friendship and love for each other. So Tim Taylor would be one of them. Who were the two head coaches at the program when I was there? John Hines, now the head coach of the National Predators. Who was the other head coach when I was there? Ron Ralston, coach in the National Hockey League, one of the smartest men in hockey they've ever been around. From there, it went to Kirk Leidendorf, another guy with experienced veteran, gave me a great taste of the other side of what the pro mentality is and how they go about it on a daily basis. He was one of the head coaches I was for one of the years. Then next, Coach Cole. Who am I with right now? Coach Cole. A great man, great hockey man, and more importantly than all that, how he carries himself away from the rink is something that I look up to. Those are just four names. I could throw out other ones, whether it's Chad Cassidy, obviously just things going on in Omaha with him, John Robleski being the head coach in the American Hockey League, Matt Curley, head coach in, in Des Moines, the USHL. Right? I mean, the list goes on and on. So that was what was going on at the U.S. program when I was there. On top of that, I got to coach on three world junior teams. Dean Blaze. Keith Elaine were the head coaches at that time. Well, okay, well, who were the assistants? First year head coaches when we were 2010. Team Blaze, the head coach of the uh, World Junior Team. Marco Siki, assistant coach. Tom Ward, I know he's been on this show. You know what he's like. Assistant coach in there as well. And myself. Next year, it was Osiki and Phil Housley when Keith Elaine was the head coach. Then it rolled again. I did it again when Blaze was the head coach as well. But I'm just talking to like the people you're around is going to help you grow in the game of hockey. And my advice to others is when you're around those people, be yourself, work hard, and show that you can make them better. That's great, Joe. That's good advice. So what made you leave the national team? Obviously, you then went to Ohio State, and you're now at Michigan State. Was college the goal at that time? Were you ever looking in the NHL? Were you ever looking in the OHL? Or It's still the same goal to this day. I want to be a head coach. My choices when I was leaving, that was four years at the U.S. program. And when I was leaving, my choices were be the development goalie coach for the Pittsburgh Penguins or be an assistant coach at Ohio State. I had to sit down, pros and cons, both fabulous jobs, both would enhance and grow my career. But I wanted to put myself in a position that would develop me to be the head coach that I one day hope to be. And after myself, my wife, we sat down and we all both decided like, hey, Ohio State. That's why I chose that. Both would have been great and probably who knows where both could have taken me, but Ohio State was where I chose. Absolutely look back with no regret. Now we're hitting rewind to my coaching career. First got into coaching. First thing I did was like, all right, get rid of my goalie skates. I'm not going to make sure nobody knows me of a goalie coach. I want to show them and prove to the world that I can coach all these other positions. I can recruit. I can develop. It doesn't matter. So get rid of all that. Two years goes by. What is my first real big coaching position? goalie coach at the u.s national development program first time they ever had a full-time goalie coach that was the big one so that next step i was like okay back to the early days want to get rid of that goalie label going this ohio state route being able to work with coach osiki again would be fabulous and that's why i did that but with all that said and you're going to ask me questions about this later i'll never get rid of that goalie label and the mature part of me realizes that i don't want to get rid of it this is something i enjoy i love to do can make those around me better. And also it's a pretty important part of the position that humbly can say that it can have an impact on the goaltenders that I get involved with. 
It's, it's funny you say that, Joe, because everyone that I know that has a, we, we call them goalie guys, people that have an expertise in goaltending, seems like they all want to shake that label. And I don't understand why, because it's the most important position in the game. I don't think anyone would even debate that. But it's you goalie insane. guys don't seem to like that title for some reason. Oh, I love it now. Here's that. Like right now, you know, like say these quarterback coaches in football, pitching right. coaches in baseball, all these other sports, who are the first person people getting all these interviews and all these jobs? They're going for them. Well, guess what? Goalie guys are spread throughout the hockey world. They're in there. They see the game differently without a doubt. But I also think they face a lot of things that all these other roles come across. But they face it at a younger age because let me know another position, all any sport, that counts your mistakes on a board. Yep, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. You were at Ohio State for six years. And then um, from there, you you stay in the conference and go – over to Michigan State. What was the what was the move there? What was the reason for it? Six yeah. years at Ohio State, fabulous time. Was able to work under Coach Osiki. Learned a ton for him. He had a great impact on Ohio State. That rolled over to work with for Coach Rollick and Rawls. Obviously, we've all seen what he's been able to do at Ohio State when he's been there. But during all this time, we'd always play Michigan State. And when you've been there for a day or maybe in a for two hours of your life, it just has this feel. So there are two main reasons. I wanted to work with Coach Hole again. He called. He offered me the opportunity. Literally walked upstairs, talked to my wife, walked back down. I originally told him, let me think about this. I'll get back to you in a little bit. Walked upstairs, talked to my wife, said, okay, we talked. Walked back downstairs, called him an hour later. I was going to Michigan State. Why? Work with Coach Hole again. And also, Michigan State, it's a hockey school. It gives me this feeling when you're walking around there, the community and the university, it's blue collar. And I want to be a part of a blue collar group and people that care about each other and push each other and have the resources to become what I believe can be a top college hockey program. And we're on our way there now. I could give you about 95 million reasons why it's a football school, Joe, but, but, <laughs> but sure. Yeah. It's now it's a special place. The Munn Center is uh, yeah. Okay. So now that we brought you up to speed, that's where you're at on the new NCAA transfer rules and the impact of all that, the transfer portal last summer obviously got a lot of attention. If you could just, from the coach's perspective, explain the process. How does the, how do you get on the transfer portal? How do the coaches know about, you know, who's on the transfer portal and what goes, are you talking to agents? Are you talking to the players directly? How does that whole process kind of evolve? So many layers to this question, and we'll start with how do you get on it? The player with the new rule has to, on his own, go and submit his name to the portal. And when that happens, coaching staff is informed, whether it was before it happened or after it happened, because it goes through the athletic administration at your university. And once you're on it, your name is in the portal. How do we find out about it when you're, it's not a player of yours? Is You just check the portal, which is a website, and that updates and shows who's Looking to transfer. Are there any rules, Joe, if say a player from Wisconsin gets on the portal, are you allowed to talk to him right away? Is there a a channel you have to go through there before you can have contact with that player? Once they're in the portal, you're allowed to talk to them. But before they're on the portal, there's no, you cannot talk to anybody before they're in the portal. Okay. Now what if uh, just playing out a scenario, you have a kid who's on a full scholarship and after a sophomore year, he says, okay, I'm going to join the portal. Do you still have to honor his scholarship if he does not end up anywhere else? No. Once a player goes into the portal, after that, it's whatever the university decides to do. 
Got it. Okay. So there is some risk to the player to get on the portal. Right. So once the portal is set, say at the end of the season or at some point later, how is that process having gone through it last year? You know, you got hundreds of names on this list. Are you going out and scouting these players? Obviously you've probably seen a lot of these guys from Mm -hmm. when they were in junior and whatever. So you, or you played against some of them, but what's your process and how it would be different from, you know, scouting a kid in the USHL or the BCHL or whatnot to figuring out, you know, who are the kids, you know, are you doing visits like you would do in a normal, how's the transfer portal recruiting process different than the regular recruiting process? The portal's up. We see a player in the portal that we have room for. What do you do? First thing you want to know is find out what his interests are. The person that you want to go to for that is the player himself. So my job or other assistant coach Luongo, his job is to find this guy's phone number so we can get in touch with him. Get in touch with him. If it's a player we really want, we go from there. We talk to him, see what his interest level is with us. And then from there, if it's high and something he wants to do, then the recruiting process takes place. Last year is a little bit tough to say because that's before all the recruiting restrictions. We couldn't have anybody on campus. So that was a lot of Zoom calls, videos of the campus, et cetera. So that's how we did it last year. This year will be different or whatever year we choose to get back into it. That will be more flying guys out in a small, short window and showing what you are and meeting them face to face. Whereas last year was more over the over a Zoom call on a computer. Joe, if you could, and you don't have to answer this for Michigan State. But I'm just saying for college coaches in general, Division One scholarship schools in general, what's the, you know, you're sitting here now and we're in late November. Obviously, schools have whatever the particular school is going to have X amount of scholarship money available. How do you figure out, okay, I'm going to offer a 19, 20-year-old in junior right now, or I want to hold on to that money and see what pops on the transfer portal? Is that a new consideration now with these new rule changes or do you just go about it the way you always have it's on the table you got to continuously make your team better we all know how competitive college hockey is each year you want your product and your team better than the following year go all the way back is how are we familiar with the guys are they're in the portal it's from all the work that was done before hockey's different than a lot of sports we're usually able to see all these guys there's nobody with junior hockey and kids typically not going into college right away So there's plenty of time for us to get our eyes out there and see them in person. And now with video, that's when we can track their game. How you handle it is it all depends on the amount of class you're losing. And you sign guys that you know for sure that are ready to come in. Those are the ones you sign now. Those are just normal recruiting process. You're playing junior hockey. They've earned it. They're going to make your team better. But I think also it goes back to what your team look like next year. How many returnees do you have? Are you an older group? Do you need youth? What do you need as a player, positionally, all those areas, all those factors come into the decision of how you go about the portal. One of the reasons I asked that, Joe, is because we're in, um, you know, at the North American League showcase where I saw you there in Minnesota. After that, there's usually 25 to 50 kids, not just in the North American League, but in that that month that are going to commit. And in speaking to colleges afterwards, there was not nearly as many commits this year. And it seemed like no one came out and necessarily said it, but it seemed like people were reluctant to spend scholarship money, not knowing what was going to be available in the portal. And I'm wondering how that impacts, you know, you're going to have players that might not know if they're coming in next year or the following year until May. And another part, yeah, the portal has an impact on it. The COVID year has an impact on all of this. 
Do we want to go back to the North American League Showcase? When was the North American League Showcase this year? That was before the USHL Showcase. So a lot of players that were going to end up in the North American League weren't really playing in the North American League. So there's just so many different layers. So all it's new. It's just we just went through our first year of it. Transfers are having an impact on teams, and everybody right. was worried in the beginning that it was just going to be all oh, the big schools are going to load up with all these guys from the portal. But I think now we're only half a season in, just about a half a season into it now. All schools have added players, whether it was with a COVID year or a portal year, and trying to make their programs better through the portal. Let's shift from the portal specific and get into kind of college hockey recruiting, because I think it's a unique, I don't know if you want to call it a skill set, but it's different than say in the CHL where you're drafting everyone the same age, you're bringing them in relatively the same age. You know, in the OHL, it's based or CHL, it's based on a draft. You just have to go and evaluate who the best players are, and then you draft them and, and, you know, you own their rights. In college, you actually have to go out and find players, recruit them to come to your school. We'll get into a lot of the details there. But my first question would be, how do you manage kind of from a roster construction perspective, the age, the difference in age? You know, there's going to be players, you have players in your conference that are 18 years old and you have players in your conference that are 25 years old. Uh, it, it, typically the 18, 19 year olds are really high end talent kids, probably NHL draft picks. And then the 20, 21-year-old freshman is typically a little older, doesn't uh, doesn't quite have the accolades. And obviously it's worked on, I can't say there's necessarily a right answer, but how do you at Michigan State or in the past manage, like, do we take the hotshot young guy? Do we take the older, experienced veteran guy? How do you kind of balance that? Each player that we bring in, and when we decide to bring them in, we see how they're going to fit for that next year, the year if they're freshman year or their first year with our program and the years after and if they fit the role in the need that we have we bring that player in then everybody always likes to ask the question oh you got to get 18 year or 19 year old guy it's only going to be there for a year would you take him absolutely who wouldn't want to have that type of thoroughbred on their roster but when that situation presents itself that's a pretty simple decision to make but then you got to make sure during the time you're filling your roster with the right players or ingredients that you need for that next year coming up because each year is important and you want to make sure you continuously put players into your lineup that make your team better and help you win because that's what we're here, to, we're here to do. And it changes year to year. A year from now, we could need just a young, smooth and decor so that two or three years from now, we don't have to bring in four or five younger guys. That's the balance. That's the art of the deal right there, making sure that you're always – Staying, increasing your talent, increasing your ability to help win games, but also making it that you're not putting all your chips in one year and not able to build a foundation of a team that's able to have long-term success. So, Joe, just going to a specific example, would you ever have a case where, let's say you have a kid in the USHL or the BCHL who's a really good player, you're looking at him to be a top six guy, say you're anticipating a junior leaving to go to the NHL. Would you ever, in that scenario, and the kid's 19, would you ever say, say the kid decides to not go to the NHL, he comes back, you don't have a top six spot from that year, but he's certainly good enough to be your seventh forward. Would you ever tell that kid, go back to the USHL for another year, play a top man, and then, then matriculate in? Or, or how do you handle those situations? Oh, if he's ready to come in before that kid decided not that he was going to go back to college, he comes in. Because okay. what's going to get the best out of all of us? What's going to get the best out of the kid that's coming back? 
that thought he was going to go pro, what's going to get the best out of the other five, six players competing for those top two, three line minutes, competition. So you always want to make sure you're putting into your roster and on your club players that are going to push each other. And if they're going to push the high-end players, get them in there and push it because then eventually it shakes itself out. The young guy could come in, show that he's able to do it. He does it. What ends up happening there? Guys around him get better. But if they don't, then the whole team and the skill and the depth of the team improves regardless. Okay, that's fair enough. Now going into specific question on recruiting. And again, you don't have to answer this for Michigan State. You just in general of a college hockey coach. And I guess every school is a little different, but you have to scout out for several years. You have some schools have kids committed for 2025. How do you balance the time of I'm watching kids that are going to help me next year versus kids are going to help me a year or two and then 15, 16 year old pool of kids that are going to help me at three years plus? The season kind of plays itself out or it shapes it for you. Early on, September's crazy. You can speak for it yourself. You're all over the place. And that's when you're throwing up the net and getting a good feel for all levels. And then coming up in November, what's that? That's the beginning of signing period. So right before November, who do you want to focus on? The guys that you're going to be offering or presenting with letters of intent. So you want to make sure you stay on top of that. Then we flow into the holiday season and a little bit thereafter. That's just making sure you keep track of the guys that you have committed have a handle of what's going on with the up-and-comers. So this year, who would it be? The 06 birth year? That's when they're going to be able to pop onto the scene. Make sure you stay on top of those guys that you got a pre-scout of at the 15 camp and early in September. And then it continues. you got to make sure you stay on top of the junior levels. And by the time this is all happening, where are we now? We're towards the end of the hockey season, right? And what's going to start to pop a lot then? We talked about it earlier in this conversation. The portal. That's when that's going to get busy. So basically throughout this whole, it's a 12 month process. (laughs) Just stay on top of all these levels, have your areas that you want to be on top of, but also don't lose sight of all the other things that are going on around it. Whether it's the young guys, the kids playing juniors, the kids that you have commitments with, and then keep another eye open of, Hey, portal season's coming on. You got to be ready for that. If that's what your team needs. How much of the time are you spending watching kids you already have verbal commitments on versus trying to find new players? You can do both. You can do both at the same time. A lot of the kids that are committed, the O5s are the young guys. So they're mixed around. They're usually playing U16 right now. And then the O4s, a lot of them are playing in the USHL or North American League. So when they have that happen, you can cover both your guys and the guys that we have that we are also continuing to look at. Okay. So obviously, if you're going to watch a kid, say, in the USHL, and a kid has success there, you can kind of project where that kid's going to end up or how he's going to be at the next level because he's playing against kids that are going to be in the next level. How do you go about doing that at the, say, U16, U15 level where the kids are playing against a variety of talent? They might score on goalies that aren't going to play at the next level. They might dangle defensemen that aren't going to play at the next level. How do you do that when you're offering for the younger players? Oh, younger guys, the younger guys and all players, I think if you take the same approach, you want to obviously evaluate them, see what you think they are currently, what they project to be. And then when you're dealing with them, it's just an open conversation. Hey, this is what we see you as. We feel that you could help us in our program in this area. Yes, when you come here, you're going to have to earn it and show that you can help us in that area. But just be have the dialogue be open and say, all right, we look at you as a center, skill, high playmaker. But your key is that you just you play with an edge and your ability to score. And then throughout the course of time, 
I think that should play out whether they're playing U15 hockey, U16 hockey, or juniors. The tough part it gets is after that U15 year, going into where you're going to play that U16 year, because you also have that opportunity to go play junior hockey. So where do you want to play junior hockey? Everybody's in a race to get that title next to that label next to their name. I play in the USHL, but is that always the best opportunity for the guy, the best situation for a player? It is case by case. Some guys are able to go there at a young age and get a lot of ice and develop. Some aren't. So I think that's when it comes to you have to step back, pump the brakes on the title you want next to your name, but also as a player themselves, they have to make the best decision and put themselves in an area where they're going to play and develop. So if we take that a step further, you guys are you know somewhat close to the border. Big 10 schools are looking at Canadians too, and, and that's a piece. Uh, so you're not just competing with NCA programs, you're competing with OHL and whatnot. And typically in those situations, you have to get in on those kids at 15, 16 years old. How has that been trying to recruit those higher end players that have multiple options? For the kids north of the border, you usually have a pretty good idea before their draft, OHL, WHL, Quebec League, you have a good idea whether they're interested in college or not. And now we're not allowed to verbally offer guys until August 1st before their junior year. That slows down the offer process, but we are able to contact them on January 1st for the young guys, and you're able to build that dialogue once that happens. But the guys that are just in that way, that little in-between year that are still eligible, playing whether it's the OJ, haven't decided whether they're going to go each way, you can really get in there and start recruiting them. That'd be the old five birth year this year. Yeah. There are really good players playing in the OJ this year that are old fives that you can start to recruit and get them on your side before their major junior decision is made. And I think the part that helps a lot in this is the official visit their junior year. You can get those guys down here earlier and recruit them in person, not just have to rely on unofficial visits. So, Joe, could you you bring up something there that I think would be important for people to kind of understand? Could you walk us through those rules of when you can start talking to players, when you can start verbally committing, and then the difference between an official and an unofficial visit? All right. So sophomores in high school, typically those are 06 birth years, some late 05s. This is this year I'm speaking about. You can start talking to them January 1st of their sophomore year. You cannot verbally offer them until August 1st going into their junior year. So January 1st, sophomore year, you can talk to them. August 1st, before their junior year, you can verbally offer them. So that's how that recruiting has changed. It used to be, it didn't matter what grade you're in. You could just talk to, you could verbally offer them and get it out of the way any way you wished. Official visits, unofficial visits. Those, again, for... 06s sophomores cannot happen until January 1st of their sophomore year. Official visits can begin September 1st, we'll say, that their junior year starts up until whenever they choose to go to college. It used to be official visits not until your senior year. So with the change of when you can offer and talk to the young guys, it's been like pretty black and white. These are the dates. Boom. We have got an extra year to officially bring kids in during their junior year. We used to have to wait until their senior year. So, Joe, like but from an official and unofficial visit, in terms of travel, in terms of staying over, do you guys pay for parents to fly, the kid to fly? Like what is covered in the official visit versus an unofficial visit? I would assume you don't cover any of it. Unofficial visit, it's all in the family. Official visit, we're allowed to pay for the flight of the player. His hotel, meals, accommodations. 
for the parents, we're not allowed to pay for their travel, their flight or mileage if they drive, but we are allowed to pay for the parents' hotel room and meals. Okay. So you watch kids, you know, various ages, as we've talked about, 20-year-olds all the way down to 15-year-olds. And before you do your offer process, and I know probably every school is different, but how much do you factor in players like character, off-ice, before making an offer? Is it kids talented enough, I'm going to make the offer and I'll find that out later? Or is it we're not making any offers until we know the best we can about who this kid is? And and oh. my second part of that is how do you find out? I mean, you're recruiting players all over North America. What resources are you using to find out what these kids are like, you know, off the ice? Once their game speaks to us, meaning like they show they have the ability and potential to be an impact division one college hockey player. Once that's happened, the first question is to the coach, to those around them, character, work ethic. Check those two boxes in a positive way the recruiting continues and it really begins. If there's a dash next year early on in one of those two areas, that's an obstacle time's going to have to allow you to overcome. Got it. Okay. I asked that because we try to stay away from that on our end. We just try to evaluate talent and kind of look at it as your guys' job to figure out kind of kids they are. But I feel like every coach in some regards is biased and is trying to say, I can't tell you how many times I hear on the road, all oh, this great kid, great kid, great kid, great. I know not all these kids are great kids. Like, is there homework you guys are doing on your end outside of the conversation with the coach to find out what's this kid like? Are you talking to teammates? Are you talking to opposing coaches? Like, what goes into that piece? We all know the hockey world is so small, and there are so many good people in it where the bad apples stick out pretty easily. And when we're doing research on getting at all these players, obviously we talk to the coach, previous coaches. And if we have guys that have played with them on before, well, obviously we'll say, hey, you played with so-and-so before, what do you think of them as a person, player, teammate, et cetera. So any information that you can gain, whatever door you got to knock down to find out what they're like as people, family-wise, teammates, et cetera. You just got to do the work and get to the bottom of it. You can't right. overlook it. I know you can't overlook right. it. Right. And there's too many good hockey players right now where it's worth overlooking that area. If there's a check next year from that area, it's there's somebody else who doesn't have that that can fill that same exact role for you and your team and you'll be able to find them we're going to end on goalie stuff badgered you on the other stuff but i'm going to ask you some one through five questions okay ranking categories one through five and i'll repeat them if you need it in terms of a winning team i'm going to give you five words you've got to rank them one through five one being most important attribute, five being least of those five. Obviously, all these five are some degree important. Culture, work ethic, talent, grit, consistency. I don't know how you win without all of them. Your culture is one, and that usually has all of that in it. If you're building a culture without those next four in it, I don't know how you are going to win. Grit is number two. Three is consistency, work ethic, talent. So to recap, a winning team, you lament that you need all five, but if you were to put them in order, number one would be culture, number two would be grit, number three would be consistency, four would be work ethic, and five would be talent. Yep. Okay. Now I'm gonna we're gonna do the same thing. We're gonna go goaltending. IQ, athleticism, poise, composure, whatever you want that realm, size, and technique. 
you left you didn't leave, you left out the most important one which is what is that mental toughness oh okay so there's one okay. i love it <laughs> all right athleticism is number two okay iq would be number three okay poise technique size okay so we'll recap we didn't have the number one which is mental toughness for goaltending but joe's two through six would be athleticism iq poise technique and then size would be last of those six okay last one we're going to go with players you know skater defenseman forward iq skill skating character and grit toughness we could switch grit with toughness character one grit two iq three skating ability four what was the fifth one skill five okay now we're going to get into uh, goalie questions because I know for our staff, we've got about 50 scouts and only two or three of them are actually goalie specific. It's very hard to find. I've, I've been trying to recruit goalie scouts for five years. There's not many out there. So we have a lot of questions from our non-goalie guys that love an opportunity to ask you these. What is the easiest thing to improve for a goalie where you watch a goalie and he's got some flaw that you say, oh, no, I don't, that's no problem. I can fix that easily. Stance. Stance. Okay. And then what is the most difficult where it could be a deal breaker? Skating. Okay. That's why if I was a young, if this is my big view of all this with, with our goalies today, young guys learn how to skate. Shaping periods of time where that's when they're going to be the goalie they're going to be 10 years from now would be 15 to 18, 15 to 20, a little bit leaking in the college. That's when you want to hammer out the foundation of their game. Third step is the small parts of your game that you continuously improve on. That happens after that. Okay. The impact of size. And that's something that we, and I can say for myself, you know, I'm not a goalie expert, but I try to find the biggest kids that are the most athletic obviously stop the puck and it seems like there's a variety of kind of discussion on can you get away with being small does size matter how much does it matter what are your thoughts on on that you can get conned by a guy that's big fooled yeah so that's one so that's where i begin with there two just being bigger help when you're trying to protect a certain area absolutely be insane not to think that it wouldn't but is it an ultimate deal breaker no i think the final thing is for any size that you are, is you have to learn how to manage your crease in order to be a goaltender. So if you had a goalie that you thought that was 5'11", and let's say we give him an A-, and there's a six foot five goalie who's a B+, would you go with the 5'11 goalie that's an A-? Yes. Number one quality like you, you have to be able to have is you got to be able to play. So no right. matter how big or smaller you are, you have to have the skills in order to get the job done. That's where it begins. The next one, if you're nitpicking between two guys and you're trying to build a national hockey league team, size is going to have you. It's going to help you in that area. If you're trying to build the best junior team, college team, currently the best goalie is the one that you want. Okay. Now that makes sense. Why do you think, Joe, from an NHL perspective, at least from a scouting perspective, I can't speak to the NHL. I don't work in the NHL, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of resources to goalie evaluations. You know, some teams all have maybe one guy, but the, the value of that position obviously is so important. Is it because it's hard to tell a goalie at 18, 17 years old in their draft year? Is more of that being spent on the development side? What, what's your kind of thought on 
goaltenders in the NHL draft? Oh, well, the first part of your question is the NHL is investing more money in developing, scouting, and finding the best goalies. We've seen that happen, I'd say, over the last 10 to 12 years. More roles are being created for goalie guys and scouting side of it, development side, and then having an NHL guy and a full-time American League guy is you must have if you want to get the best out of your organization. And teams are doing that now, which is great. Draft-wise, the draft is, I mean, that's a lot of it based on where you're projecting guys to be. And it's the long haul game, especially with goaltending. So that's when it has to go down to where he is currently and what you see him becoming, but also remembering that a lot of the guys that end up making it in the big picture are the same guys that you thought were going to make it when they were 18, 19 and 20 years old. Obviously we always hear about the stories. Oh, this guy came out of nowhere and became it. But how many of those are really sprinkled throughout the NHL in all positions? Why a lot of those it, guys playing there are showed it their whole life that they can get the job done. Why is it, Joe, that in general, goaltending seems to take longer? And the data is pretty significant in terms of college commitments, that there's very, very few goalies that commit before the age of 18, uh, whereas in other positions, especially forwards, that you have commitments. You could have 50-plus commitments at 16-year-olds. Yeah, I think it's a uh, many things, and we'll look at – you can't make a mistake, <laughs> right? So everybody wants to make sure they have as much information as possible and proven track record so that the chances are low that you got the wrong guy. I think the position is evolves over time, and especially goaltending, there's so much on the mental side of it that happens. I'm not minimizing what happens in all these other positions, but the goalie position itself, like the longer it go, you go through it, the better you become and you, the more experiences you have, the better goal. It just kind of shows what goal you're going to be. If you can go up the ladder and climb through these ups and downs and you have the talent, you're going to be successful. You see that in college, you see that in the national hockey league, you see that all over. So Joe, right now we're, we're in ranking season at neutral zone. We're trying to figure out, you know, where kids rank in their birth year. And one of the things I think is most difficult on our end with goaltending is we put a you know 50%, 60% weight on this year's performance. And then there's some on projecting, there's some on their past, but the but the bulk is on this year. But I you know, I pulled up last night 20 goalies that we're looking at for the 2002s. And some of them are consistently every year they're good, above average, they're 90 save percentage, 905. Then there's some guys that are in the mid eights, and then this year they're at 930. How much do you look at that? And I know it's a case by case, but I'm just saying in general terms, someone who's consistently good versus someone who spikes in one year, do you trust that one year? Would you go more on the current year or would you look at the full body of work? Your next shot, like that's the mentality all goalies want to have. You're not, you're only as good as your last shot essentially. Right. So I think it's scouting goalies, especially at these ages. If you were trying to predict the next guy is going to be playing in the NHL, your chances are small, but if you're trying to predict who's the best for this year and the next year, go by the current year. Cause that's where their game is now. Keep in mind the impact of how good the team is in front of them. That can kind of shadow what these save percentages are. So that's why it's our job to get out there and actually evaluate them. 
and the wins and losses. So a lot of it's determined the team you're on. But your actual play during the 60 minutes of a game or 45 or whatever minutes level they're playing at, that's what matters. That's where your rankings should come from this year, not what they did three years ago or not what you hope they do four years from now. Oh, that's great advice, Joe. Furthering on that, would this statement be true? Could you ever go to a game and team one wins three to nothing and you like the goalie that led in the three goals more than the goalie that had the shutout? Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it all depends what happened during the game, right? Good. Well, that's gonna... what I mean. Like I'm saying, can you statistically show worse, but be better than the, like, yes. how much are you looking at the stats? I guess is what I'm getting at with stats, a goalie. The, with goalie stats, Matt, wins and losses matter. That's the number you really want to focus on because you could see four shots and mess up a game pretty easily, right? You mm-hmm. could also see four shots and come away with a thousand percent save percentage. What does that really matter? So wins and losses are a great part of evaluating a goaltender. On top of that, you go into a game to answer your question where the goalie just got peppered with 50 shots. He saved 46 of them, lost four to nothing or four to one. Yeah, you better pay attention to him just as much as you're paying attention to the guy who saw 20 shots and only gave up one. With that said, the art of only giving up one goal on 20 shots is something that a goalie has to be able to do. I think it's important. I'm curious, Joe, with all the technology, the video, the the goalie coaching experts, the consultants, what your thought on that? Yeah, so, some people have said maybe goalies are overcoached. Some people say that's this is great for goalies. This is what's getting goalies to the next level. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that at the youth hockey level? I'd say overall, there was a point in time where goalies were being overcoached because there wasn't a direct message from a certain area of how goalies have to be trained in order to develop properly. Everybody was kind of going rogue on their own. Oh, do this, do that. And that was messing a lot of guys up. But I think overall in the U.S., we've done a good job of just having a consistent message to present when we're hitting the guys one-on-one, but also for the goalie businesses that are going around in each area. So I think that's minimized the overtraining, overcoaching part of it. But like anything in life, can you go to the extreme? Absolutely. It's a black and white position. And at the end of the day, it's evolved a lot in how it's played, but it really hasn't. The most important thing is you got to be able to skate. So if you're under the age of 14, 15, work in your skating. You really want to hammer that on. What should you be focusing on? You should be focusing on your stance because your stance is the catalyst of your game. That's the engine that steers your game. Make sure you're on top of that. And you better have great hand-eye coordination. Those three areas right there. Next step is when you get a little bit older is how to handle situations. And that's when it's important to have a goalie coach around the junior level, college level, pro level that can help each goaltender, because we are all shaped differently and play differently, use what best suits their game. Joe, my last question on the goalies, and, and I could extend this to players as well. Do you gauge games differently based on what's at stake? Meaning, do you look at a performance someone puts on and say at the USHL showcase versus a playoff game or is a game a game when you're doing evaluations? Every game for the goaltender, their routine, how they prepare should be similar. Whether it's game seven of the playoffs or game one of the regular year, those are the same preparation goes into both sides. We'd be fooling ourselves to think that there isn't, it's a different game, seven to game 52 of a regular season game, completely different. So is the evaluation of how they perform in those areas have a little bit higher. Absolutely. But 
as far as the product that you're going to have and the goalie that you are, it should be consistent from that game, middle season, preseason, and end of the year. If you want to, number one, have the most success and also show that you've developed as a goalie and you are a goaltender. Okay, that makes perfect sense to me. The last question, Joe, and this is a little bit long-winded. Obviously, you, you played, you know, you went up through the system, you made it to Division One. then you get injured, you come back, you play, then you get into coaching. You actually got injured again coaching. We didn't talk about that when you were with the national nope. team. Hit your head again. Yeah. Um, and I've seen you in the rinks for years. I mean, I remember Ohio State, and you're, you're one of the guys that's always very happy whether your teams are having success or they're not. What is it that you love so much about hockey? Why is it that you never, a lot of people might've given up after the injury or the second injury, or might've said, Hey, let me get new insurance or something. Why is it that you are from, it sounds like the age of five till today, you've never taken a year off of hockey. The easy part is the people in the game. You want to make sure, especially when you get a little, wherever you are, surround yourself with good people. Unfortunately, this great game has lots of great people in it. And I think it helps shape you as a person. And I get to go to work every day. Like it doesn't feel like work. Like at Michigan State with Coach Cole, Coach Luongo, our whole staff, it's fun. They care about you. They support you. And it's people you want to share great times with. And the part that we're all driving for is, I mean, there's no better feeling than winning. Like that feeling of winning is the ultimate, but the work underneath it, I truly enjoy, whether it's out there recruiting the practice, which is the pots where make an impact on somebody physically is outstanding. And just the relationships inside of a team, there's no other part of your life that you can get that from where the bond that you share, whether you're, if you're a teammate or if you're a coach that you're having an impact on other people. And fortunately for me, God's given me gifts, but also opportunities where I'm able to do it in something I love. And it's my job to show up. And like I said about my playing days, never have any regret about the effort I put in. And I take that same focus and mentality with my work each day. That's awesome, Joe. I, I appreciate you jumping on the podcast with us. Uh, Spartans are 8-5-1 and one right now, heading into Penn State, right, this weekend? Yeah, Penn so, State, Notre Dame before the break. So Big Ten hockey's it's going to be competitive as it always gets, and can't wait to get out to Penn State and play them. Good luck here, Joe, in the end of the season, and thanks a lot for taking the time answering our questions. Very informative, and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thanks for having me in neutral zone. Continue to work hard. You guys set the tone for all of us here in the scouting world.